We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. I'm so old that when I worked in the United States Senate, Mitch McConnell was one of the reasonable Republicans of the United States Senate. I mean, a really good guy. When I first was dealing with these people, and I'd be on the floor of the United States Senate, what I was always interested in in encountering these people is, is there a human being there? And I'm telling you, there isn't a human being there in over 80% of them. And when I was there, around 90% of them, there was no human being. 80 to 90% of the senators yeah. are no human They're being. not human. They are zombies. For most of them, it would be a trick question to say to them, what would you not do to get reelected? I would do right. anything to get reelected. Exactly. Doesn't exactly. Right. So Mitch McConnell, who I had very little dealings with, looked to me to be the normal Bob Dole style Republican of that era. It's very unlikely that Mitch McConnell as a human being has changed. My sense of it is there was never really anything there. He was going to do whatever it took to hold on to this office. And that's it. Lawrence O'Donnell is one of the best political broadcasters in all of TV for many reasons, but a big part of it is this. He's one of the few political broadcasters who actually worked inside the system. Most of the hosts on the cable networks have never actually been an elected official or worked for an elected official in D.C. Lawrence was a key aide to New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan for six years, which took him inside the process and inside the rooms and allows him to understand the reality of it all better than most people do. He's a great guy who had me on his MSNBC show many times. I love his show, so I couldn't wait to turn the tables on him because he's brilliant and cool. It's the one and only Lawrence O'Donnell on Touré Show. Let's look at, what is it, January 20th, 2021. Let's say Trump has lost a very close election and he refuses to leave. What do we do? His uh, Secret Service detail, which, be which is his retirement detail, right, which goes to work at 12 noon that day, uh, is in charge of solving that problem for you. It really? Oh, yeah. It won't matter what he says. He is a trespasser at that point in time. And let's go through the whole scenario. Is right? there no, is there is no, isn't there not a legal uh, mechanism he could use to say, no, 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 I'm no. not leaving. No, absolutely not. There's nothing. And so, so, so what's this? I, I hear people say this, and Bill Maher is one of the original authors of this idea that this is possible, but this really is, um, this is so impossible that what it is is a comment on how 
unbalanced we've become from the, you know, imbalancing forces of Trumpism. Trumpism is is an act of insanity right. every day, all day. Right. And so we are left with trying to anticipate insanity, and you cannot anticipate insanity. And so, you know, we we pick things off the menu like, well, what if he won't leave? And the insanity is so complete that you know th- that that means people have taken their eye off how those transitions happen. We think of them as the so-called peaceful transition of power for which America is so deeply proud as if it's the only place in the world where that (laughs) happens. Right. And it's not, there's nothing peaceful about it. It, it, it's enforced by law. Uh, Inauguration day is enforced by law. It happens because of the law, not because people like just decided to do it that day and they all feel very agreeable about it. And so, you know, the chief justice of the Supreme Court will swear in President Warren or, you know, President Harris or President Biden or whoever it is. And in the scenario everyone's imagining, remember, I assume they're saying Donald Trump doesn't show up for the inauguration because the outgoing president has a traditional role in the inauguration. They don't have to show up. Not all of them have. Okay. It's, it, it, so, um, the, the, so we are assuming the president stays at the white house, right? And we don't have that cable news moment where the incoming president walks up the steps of the white house at 11 AM to be greeted by the still current president for another hour. And they have that little tea session before they then go down to the Capitol. What are we assuming that, uh, that Donald Trump is in the White House, that the gates are locked, that no one's allowed in. Donald Trump doesn't have a key to anything. <laughs> the Secret Service does. Okay, right. That's who has the gate out there. The Secret Service is in a hierarchy uh, uh, underneath a commander-in-chief, and that commander-in-chief changes names at 12, 15 p.m., thereabouts, you know, when the, the hand is raised. And as of that moment, uh, they are responding to that person. And then nothing's ever going to change that. Uh, I don't think Trump, I can't imagine Trump going to the inauguration. I right. can't imagine. Right. A party for I someone think, else. I mean, I, my, my theory of the case is, you know, he will lose the election. Uh, and that's just based on everything the polls are telling us. Uh, he will lose the election. I don't think it will be close. I think it will be call, called early. It's not going to be one of those things like last time. And, um, and, and the next day, he will go to mar largo and not come back. He's not going to spend Christmas <laughs> in the White House in this kind of like lugubrious, oh, here's your final days in the White House, and let's have our final Christmas party for Fox News in the White House. He's not going to do that. He's, he's going to, you know, get out of there. Uh, and, and he'll be gone for all of December. And there, I mean, there isn't a president now, but there manifestly will not be a president then. Sure. You know, and, and he, I'd be shocked if he showed up for, for inauguration. Why would he do that? So who's going to win? I don't know who wins the Democratic nomination, but whoever that is, is the next president. So, right. Who should win? If, if Lawrence was king, but oh, not, in, you know, or, or magic wand, who would be best for America I next? I don't feel as strongly about that as I have in the past. Okay. Uh, I, I felt very strongly about Barack Obama as soon as he decided to run. And it was pretty clear to me early on that he was going to beat Hillary Clinton, even when he was 20 points behind her because of the way uh, 
the internals of Hillary Clinton's numbers versus the internals of Barack Obama's numbers. You could see that what the trajectories were going to be on the way on, uh, over time. Uh, I felt strongly about John Kerry being the best in his field, I, and I. It's not customary for me to feel strongly about. Uh, establishment presidential candidates. I mean, I, I have not, I, I have voted third party many, many, many times, many times. Um, and so in this group, uh, I think, you know, Senator Harris, Senator Warren, uh, Joe Biden, I have a lot of confidence in, but that's sort of an unfair advantage confidence. It's because I know him mm -hmm. and it's because I worked with him in government and mm -hmm. I know exactly what he's like in the most important moments, which have nothing to do with anything that happens in campaigning and certainly nothing to do with anything that happens on debate stages. That is the moment when the door closes. That's the presidential moment. That's in the Oval Office. It's in the cabinet room. It's in the Roosevelt room sometimes. And when you have a private meeting away from media... Drop the word private. Just say real. Okay. Because everything, everything else is fake. Okay. Every speech is fake. It's meaningless. I ignore that stuff. If you've ever been in the room, you ignore everything that happens outside the room. It's, it, it's like it's – here's the way we cover government, okay? Not necessarily politics, which is, a, which is an external You told me this in D.C. Oh, and this was one of the best – uh, understandings of media's relationship to government oh, that, I had, I, that I had ever heard. I hope I remember it as, as clearly. So it's it, if you think about the Super Bowl, you know, if, it's as if we covered the Super Bowl this way. Uh, the players make a bunch of speeches for two weeks ahead of time, which <laughs> they sort of do. Um, they are incredibly boastful speeches, and they claim that, you know, I'm going to score five touchdowns and all that stuff. And then when you have the game, you close the door of the stadium and no one's allowed in except the players and the coaches. No wives, no family, nothing, no cameras, nothing. And the way you find out what happened in the room where the Super Bowl happened is that the players come out and tell you. No one would trust a word they said. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. No one would admit to fumbling. No one threw an interception. Right. So that's the way we do it. And you, you literally watch this, right? Like they have these meetings and, and you kind of know some, the, the least important meetings are the ones you know about. The okay. least important meetings in the Oval Office are the ones where Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are seen going in the driveway and going into the meeting. And then the cameras are allowed in the meeting at the beginning. And then the cameras are kicked out. And then they go out to microphones uh, in, in the driveway and they tell you what happened. That, that meeting was a joke to be from beginning to end. Uh, the meetings that matter are the ones that are never televised, and they involve, you know, cabinet members, they involve the budget director, they involve a lot of staff, including staff from the Senate and the House, depending on what they're talking about. And and those meetings, you know, no one even knows occurs. That's where the real governing gets done. That's where the real decision-making gets done. And nobody asks anyone questions about what happened in that meeting because no one knows the meeting occurred. And, and, but that's, that's where the presidency lives. And I've been in those kinds of rooms with Joe Biden in the United States Senate and in the White House, in fact. Um, during the Clinton presidency, there would be meetings uh, that I had to go to as the staff director of the Senate Finance Committee, along with the chairman of the committee, Chairman Moynihan. Chairman Biden of the Judiciary Committee would be in some of those meetings in, in the White House, but plenty of meetings in the Senate 
with the door closed, meetings that no one knows about. The cameras aren't waiting for us to come out. They have no idea. Joe Biden in that room with the door closed is exactly, exactly who you want him to be. And interestingly, his personality is completely different. He tends to talk the least. He knows who the expert is in this room on whatever the subject is, and he listens to that person as opposed to talk to that person. You don't see any of that nervous energy that that you see with him publicly where he's so eager to please publicly. He's not trying to please anyone with the door closed. He's trying to be a team player in that in, in that conversation. Well, just stepping and, away, and, and he's just great. Stepping yeah. away from Biden specifically, what does it take to be great in that room, thus you become an effective steward of government? Well, great is a strong word for it. Uh, I'd, I'd be reluctant to use. But what it requires is what you saw in everything we know about Barack Obama. Studiousness, someone who's going to do his homework and has been doing his homework since high school, quite literally. That's how he got into those academic institutions and excelled at them. Uh, Someone who knows, like Biden does, who the experts are. Someone who always recognizes who knows more about this than I do. Which, by the way, for the president, is usually everyone everyone in the room. (laughs) Everyone in the room knows more about it than you do. Uh, The president has to know a substantial amount about more things than anyone else, okay? So Samantha Power comes in from the UN and says, here's what's going on there. Great. Samantha Power doesn't have to know anything about taxation. Zero. Nothing. So when the Treasury Secretary comes in, she can leave because it's got nothing to do with her. And, you know, the Treasury Secretary needs to know a little bit about foreign policy, but not very much. The president, I mean, think of this range of subjects that the president has to have some level of fluency in, and no president enters with enough fluency in any of those subjects. And so it's it's an on-the-job training process for everyone. It's much less so for senators the longer they've been senators. Mm-hmm. You know, like the smallest on-the-job training ever was Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. He'd been majority leader of the United States Senate, you know, mm-hmm. then vice president. Now he's suddenly president. Well, he he knew uh, everything about, about what that job was by that time. But, uh, you know, the governors come in. I mean, that's like, that's like hiring the president of Avis, you know, to be the president of, of, of Paramount. It's like they have no idea what this is. They have no idea when governors come in. I mean, I, I am not a fan of making governors president of the United States at all. I, I, I'm very Washington biased about this and very much uh, prejudiced in favor of people who come from the Senate or from the House uh, who have experience in foreign policy. You know, I mean, governors have never spent one minute of their life thinking about the biggest expenditures and therefore responsibilities in the federal government, which are social security, Medicare, and national defense. And no governor has spent one minute of of his work life thinking about any one of those subjects. And senators always do. You talk about intellectual things that it takes to to Mm -hmm. succeed in the room. Are there interpersonal things that we see that typically align with people who are good? Absolutely. I mean, humility is necessary. You know, you have to be able to sit there and realize that this guy knows a lot more than you do about this. This woman knows a lot more than you do about it. And 
even if there's something about this person's personality or something that you don't like, you cannot give up listening to them. <laughs> you know, you're, and there are people uh, who I won't name who who uh, who at, at various times have been in presidential administrations who who I know who are irritants. They they are just man, that guy's tough to take, but. He's just back from Bosnia, so you better listen to him because he's all we have in terms of what just is, is going on over there. Um, and so you can't indulge any uh, of these – you can't indulge normal human inclinations toward liking and disliking people and dealing with people on the basis of I like or dislike. You have to be very, very careful not to develop favorites. Um you, you, um, and governors are terrible at this. I mean, uh, I saw Clinton be kind of bad at this. Uh, he would listen more uh, to some people based on just a kind of personality favoritism. Um, two examples of that is he, 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 he listened way too much to Teddy Kennedy about certain things, uh, who was, you know, coming from the left on things. And he listened way too much to David Bourne. Uh, who was a very, what we then called, this is non-existent now, but we then called a conservative Democrat. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Democratic senator from Oklahoma. And he was always a struggle for me because David Bourne was on the finance committee and he was always pulling us away from where we wanted to go. But in in the truth of the outcomes, David Bourne, I always had to admit in the end, ended up moving us into a better political strike zone. You know, we avoided this tax in favor of this other tax, and that's actually going to be better uh, for us in terms of selling the whole package and all that. To that point, you have to be a good negotiator, right? Oh, yeah. Because you're always giving something away to get something. Yeah, and and you you have to recognize the, uh, you know, just the fundamental, you can't bend steel with your bare hands. You know, there's, there's a limit to this and there are things that won't work. There are stupid things, you know, and look, my experience is with exactly one president. I was in the room with one president, Bill Clinton. So I can talk about, you know, sharp, good moments he had, and I can talk about stupid moments he had. One breathtakingly stupid moment, which is so teenage and so amateur, and it disgusted us at the time. We were revolted by it, that it was such an amateur, idiotic thing to do, was this uh, revenge he took on Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama, who, when I was there, was a Democrat and switched parties because of Bill Clinton, okay? And Clinton did nasty little things to to Richard Shelby because Richard Shelby would vote against us on things. We we had 57 Democrats. We didn't need Shelby for everything. We were very, very glad that Shelby voted for the Democrat to be majority leader instead of the Republican. We never asked him to do anything after that, you know, and, and we recognized that. That's how you have a Democratic senator from Alabama. Of course, he doesn't vote with us on a lot of stuff, uh, but Clinton was kind of nasty to him. And, 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 you know, that's a kind of intuitive way of behaving. It's the way people in the real world behave, you know, uh, like this, you know, this person is disagreeing with me. Therefore I don't like him. Therefore I'm going to president can't do that. Oh no. 
oh, you can't indulge any of that. You have what you have to recognize. And today's atmosphere is a really good way to test your own personal presidential ability and Everyone I know is failing this test. Part of what you just said, just it's partly why you stand out as a broadcaster for me, because you're one of the few people on all the channels who've actually been inside the process. It's like cheating. It's really like, it's like cheating. It's like, it's almost like being the, the only guy at the Weather Channel who's seen a hurricane, like a real hurricane. And right. It's like, it right. feels like cheating to me. And, and I got to say, I think people have gotten a lot sharper. When I started doing this, I used to sit there thinking, well, I could spend the first half hour telling you why everything you've heard about this today is wrong, <laughs> and this is what it is. Or I could, you know, and, and I think, I mean, I mean, truly, when I started, for example, no one knew what the debt ceiling was. It, right. that, that, that phrase had never been used on television before. And I used it uh, when the Republicans uh, won back the House of Representatives with these Tea Party people, and I used it in election coverage that night. And I said, well, uh, an increase in the debt ceiling is coming up, so they're going to be tested very soon. Uh, and Keith Oberman was anchoring our coverage at the time. Nobody on the panel had any idea what that was. Um, and, and, but here's the cool thing. 60 days later, they all did. And Keith Oberman was completely fluent in the debt ceiling 60 days later. And so that's the interesting thing that I've watched is that there's this you know, budget reconciliation only needs 50 votes and everything else needs 60 votes. That used to be a secret of the priesthood that nobody in New York knew. There wasn't a person outside of Washington who knew that. <laughs> Everybody knows this now. Uh, so it's been, it's been kind of cool to watch my advantage erode over time as, as this has become. Not that much. Yeah, but it's, it's still quite, all these issues have it's become. It's so stark. And there's such great, I mean, you know, people like Rachel working on this stuff. I mean, such smart people who are taking it on and, and, and really, I mean, they're doing stuff that Walter Cronkite really didn't have much homework to do. Okay, it was a 22-minute show with commercials, mm -hmm. and he was basically reading the first paragraph of every New York Times story on TV. That was the job, okay? <laughs> um, what homework did he have to do? Think about the homework that within the MSNBC community, certainly. A lot. Uh, people like Rachel do, Chris Hayes, and they are, you know, like Barack Obama, they're that kind of person who was born, you know, doing their homework and being yeah. good students. And, and they are digging deeper into these subjects than you've ever seen people in makeup on TV do before. <laughs> and, um, and so what used to feel like a huge advantage to me, and by the way, I used to feel, when, when you worked in the Senate, worked in the Senate when I did in the early 90s, we all had this problem, congressional staff or, you know, expert staff anywhere in the government, is we didn't know how to talk to people. Like, we, we actually didn't know how to talk to people in our families. We didn't know how to talk to people outside of the office. And now I feel like, you know what, if you have those jobs, a lot more of it, a lot more people you know, know what, you know, reconciliation is, and they know what points of order are, budget points of order are in the Senate. And, and you're not as isolated in this group that could only talk to itself at work. Um, and, and, and then you're, therefore, you're not as isolated as a human being, as, as we all I realized after I left how isolated as a human being I was when I was there. You were. Um, is the Ukraine, what are we going to call it, scandal? 
Is it, <laughs> it seems like so weak a word, doesn't it? I know, it? right? Then yeah. is, is, it, is it worse than what happened in Watergate? Uh, that's so interesting to try to compare. Um, Watergate's always I, the touchstone, right? I, I would have right? to say yes, because so Watergate was a domestic crime, and, and you were basically committing a domestic domestic organized crime against your political opponents. And you're doing it, in, in Nixon's case, what's so exquisite about it for Nixon is you're doing it at, at a point in your own personal dementia, which has been building your entire life. And, <laughs> and Nixon, by the way, lived a life full of resentment, exactly like Trump, mm -hmm. from a different place. Uh, but Nixon grew up poor in California. He resented the East Coast Ivy Leaguers. Richard Nixon actually got into Harvard College. He was admitted to Harvard College. And he ended up going to Duke. Uh, and, and he ended up doing that because at that time, Duke made it financially easier for him. Uh, and now, you know, Harvard offers more financial aid than anybody, but, but not at that time, right? And I've often wondered how the world would have changed and been better off if Richard Nixon went to Harvard mm. for the following reason. Had he gone to Harvard in those days, he would have met his first Jewish person in his life, okay? So would he have been the virulent anti-Semite that he was in the Oval Office, railing against the New York Times and the Jews who run it and the Jews generally, if he had actually gone to college with some of those people? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and so he lived in this resentful posture toward all of that, as does Trump coming from Queens and same thing with the New York Times, the whole thing. And that, that resentful posture drove them both, uh, has driven them both. Uh, Trump, yeah, I think, has been insane for virtually all of his adult life. But it, but it drove Nixon crazy because he's ordering a burglary of the Democratic Party during a presidential campaign where he's on his way to winning 49 states. Mm. That's just a wonderful level of madness for someone <laughs> to, have, to have twisted himself into. Um, and so it's a domestic crime, though, ultimately. This is something that is, that Ukraine is a level that is just stunning, uh, that, that you'd, you'd reach into another country knowing they're taping your phone call, by the way, like, like knowing all of that, right? Um, they must. And because they tape it. They don't, they, don't, they don't have people doing notes over there. They actually tape them in the other countries. And so that they've got this tape of you doing this, um, that's a breathtaking level of the crime. And by the way, Nixon committed the same crime, but he did it when he was a private citizen running for election in 1968 when he won the presidential election, he was doing it against Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who was running for president. What Nixon was doing was communicating with South Vietnam, the regime in South Vietnam, telling them, do not go to the peace negotiations with Lyndon Johnson. Basically, I need that war to be going and going very badly on election day for me to win. And he was right. He needed that election to be going, that the war to be going badly. Nixon won in 68 by less than 1% of the vote. So every single thing he did won that election, including his illegal 
interference with the peace negotiations, because if Johnson had any progress in peace negotiations, then Humphrey would have looked a lot better than Nixon. So Nixon pulled that off as a private citizen. He did not do it as president, but he had the heart of the kind of criminal who would do it. So the the similarities between uh, Nixon and Trump are, are vivid, including uh, both of them getting caught in conversations that they knew there was going to be a record. <laughs> you know? And the great thing about Nixon is a lot of the conversations uh, that were on his tapes and the taping system in the White House were conversations in which he was the only person in the conversation yeah. who knew it was being taped. Right. It's like right, there's right. only one guy here who knows it's being taped, right. and he's the one who gets in criminal trouble on the tape. It's just so great. But, the, I mean, the Ukraine thing is bad. It's so bad. It's so deeply, profoundly bad. After Trump has been investigated for exactly this, you know, Mueller went in and investigated him for, you know, collusion, as they say, conspiracy with a foreign government to affect the election. And now he's conspiring with a foreign government to affect the election. But Donald Trump is so profoundly stupid that I don't <laughs> think he's educable, literally, about anything. He's the guy who thinks you can drop nuclear bombs in the middle of hurricanes. He he is a walking moron. So <laughs> other people might learn something from the from the Mueller investigation. He's incapable of learning. It's it's just, you know, he's it, it's just this horribly moronic guy who 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 can't help himself cuz he he can't learn anything about anything. He <laughs> He doesn't see. It's funny how you have just been taking the wood to him. Since He's a very he was- obvious person to me. You know, I, I, I've always thought he was a moron. As soon you know, as soon as he emerged publicly, he looked like a moron to me. And in the '80s in New York, you know, when he was finally getting himself in articles in New York Magazine, uh, everyone I knew thought he was an absolute vulgarian right. boob. Fool, but he was just a tabloid. He was just a goofball, figure. just this goofball character. Yeah, it was one of those characters. This over New there. York is crazy. Yeah. he's the one standing over there talking to Geraldo Rivera. Have you had you know? this out with him face no, to face? No, no, no. I met him once in the hallway of MSNBC when he was leaving the Morning Joe set. I didn't want to talk to him. I don't. I'm not there to meet people. But he, you know, took a few steps out of his way to come over and shake my hand and say hello because he was in that business in those days. This would have been around. 2009 or something. It would have been before, you know, he he was said anything political. But he was in the business of trying to co-opt everybody in the news business you right. know, and make them pals. And he succeeded at most of that. I, I wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, and then after I started attacking him, I, as soon as he opened his mouth about Barack Obama's birth certificate, I went on TV that night, called him a liar and a pathological liar. And I was horrified at the way television news failed to cover what that was and how they all kept inviting him on TV and inviting him to keep saying it and falling for the idiotic lies about he's sending private investigators to Hawaii. I know he's not sending private investigators to Hawaii for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's too cheap. And, I, and I've never met him, but I know that. You know, I know it, it, the guy reeks of it. Uh, and he's just going to make this up and lie, you know. And so, you know, I understand that people in the TV news business and the New York Times did not know that you are allowed to publicly use the word lie. I understand in their institutions they never did and they didn't know how. Uh, That's not where I come from. Where I come from, you can do it. And so I start saying it in 2011 
And I remember vividly in September, five years later, five years later, in September of 2016, when Donald Trump is the nominee for president, the New York Times uses the word lie for the very first time. Did you get pushback? Uh, no, I didn't. Nobody, I mean, nobody said, certain, hey, we can't say that? I got that? pushback from Donald Trump. He threatened to sue me on no, Twitter. No, but no, nobody in the building no, said, hey, you can't no, say that. At no point. And I got to tell you, I did stuff then because I had, I had this advantage. It's always an advantage to not care about your job. Um, <laughs> the advantage is uh, you will not take, you know, any stuff from anyone. Uh, and like and all the jobs I had, I've had, I never like hung stuff on the wall because I always wanted to quit tomorrow. Like if you piss me off tomorrow, I'm quitting. I'm quit. I'm gone. And it's still right? like that for you. And it's always been like that. Like when I was at West Wing, I never hung up a picture. It's like if anybody, if Warner Brothers pisses me off, if anybody here pisses me off, I'm Not gone. Here. And people like that reek of that. And so no one pisses them off. You know, it's one of those <laughs> things, right? And so, so, um, and, and so not only did no one at MSNBC push back at all on me attacking Trump. I very specifically, in the first time he was lying about running for president in 2012, I announced on the air one night, I came in one day and I went, hey, uh, somebody tell me when the upfronts are for NBC. The upfronts are when the entertainment division announces its schedule for the fall. They do it in May. Somebody comes in and says, oh, it's May 7th. I go, okay, great. I go on TV that night and I say, we now know the exact date on which Donald Trump will admit that he is not running for president. It is May 7th when NBC announces its schedule, right? I give you the, the exact apprentice. date. And that is exactly the way it happens. And he does it with NBC's complicity by walking onto the stage of the upfronts and announcing, I'm doing my show, therefore I'm not running for president. As those days are approaching, and Trump is becoming uglier and uglier about the birth certificate, I actually go on TV and I say, um, there are NBC executives in their offices in Burbank right now who know the truth of this story, who are participating in this falsehood that he's running for president. They know he's not. They can reveal this, and NBC News should be asking NBC Entertainment exactly. And that day, the head of, N of NBC Entertainment, uh, I happen to know later, uh, called up. Uh, Phil Griffin at MSNBC and complained MSNBC. like he's mentioning my name, you know, and it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and that guy, uh, that particular show business executive will never do business with me again. But, um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't do that now because I have a larger sense of corporate sens sensitivity which is something you get the longer you stay in a corporation. I, I would do something similar. I would say the upfronts, but I wouldn't say there's executives in their offices in Burbank right now. Like I wouldn't put the finger on those guys. So you lost your nerve a little bit? Yeah, yeah, because corporate <laughs> life does that, you know. Um, it sands down yeah, the edges? Yeah, you do. Look, I've been doing the, this thing for like nine years or so. Yeah. You know, it, it now is my livelihood, right? It now is my paycheck. I didn't think it was going to be my paycheck for very long. I signed a three-year contract to start this thing. I'd never signed a three-year contract before. I thought it will last 18 months or something like that. I didn't take it that seriously. I, I was much more concerned with what my next project in show business would be. And I had I was juggling show business projects when I started this show, and then this thing has just mushroomed in a, sort of a claim on my time, uh, 
and it's what I do, you know? And so once, once it's what you do, you start to protect what you do. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I listen to a lot of music, and let me tell you, I can highly recommend DJ Shadow's newest project, Our Pathetic Age. It's his first official double album and the biggest album of his career. It's got an instrumental suite representing some of his more ethereal and electronic leanings and a vocal suite, which gets into traditional hip-hop, which you know I love. He's got a murderer's row of artists on there, including De La Soul, greatest group in hip-hop history, Run the Jewels, Nas, one of the greatest rappers in hip-hop history, Dave East, Ghostface Killer Raekwon, and Inspector Deck from another one of the greatest groups in hip-hop history, Pharaoh Monch, another great rapper, and many more. Look, whatever side of DJ Shadow's musical personality suits you, you're going to find something on this double album to sink your teeth into and fall in love with. Check out Our Pathetic Age, available now on all streaming platforms. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today 
and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. You you look at your ratings all the time? Oh, yeah. yeah. Every day? Yeah, because everything comes from ratings. Everything comes from ratings. And, and you know, people always say, I, people are always saying, why are they doing that on X show? Whether it's Bravo Numbers. or us, right? There's a very simple reason. Whenever you're watching television that has commercials, whenever you're watching that, yeah. every single thing you're seeing between the commercials is designed to get a bigger audience for the commercials. Yeah. Okay? It's all 100% for ratings. Now, there are things, and so what, what I try to do is, and I make decisions all the time about uh, across the board based on ratings all the time. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do is build up a rating that allows me spots here and there to make decisions that I know will hurt the ratings, actively hurt the ratings. Okay. I mean, there's this thing I do, you know, I have this program that I created in, in Malawi where I, I an organization that pro- we provide desks yes. for schools, yes. right? And we provide scholarships for girls to go to high school in Malawi. Whenever I talk about it on the show, the ratings drop off minimum of a third, minimum. It's everybody just goes, let me see if Don Lemon's having an argument. Um, and, and, you know, they just get out of here, right? And I build a rating over time where we go, okay, in December, when we do this, and, you know, and Phil Griffin knows this. They all know. So remember, whenever I'm doing that, the network executives know the ratings are going down every time he opens his mouth about those kids. And so I've got to earn that space, right? I've got, I've got to earn that where they go, ah, oh, geez, well, I guess we got to let them do it, you know? And, and so, and ratings are power, you know, ratings um, in all of television, ratings are power. Yeah. So, so as if you get the rating, they don't tell you what to do. Nobody tells Rachel Maddow what to do. Right. Nobody dares say a word to her. Right. And because no one tells her what to do, her show is better and better and better. Um, and so, you know, there's nobody telling me what to do because um, I get the second highest rating at MSNBC because Rachel's my lead in. <laughs> it's yes. like you could put it a helps. log after Rachel and it set it on fire well. and it would be the second highest <laughs> rating at MSNBC. Yes. Right. And so, you know, um, so yeah, but you know, in any, in any job that you, gr- as you grow attached to a job, you be, you will become more careful about the job. You know, you, when I started working in the Senate, it was the strangest thing to me. It was just, it was like a career accident. And I just thought, this is not right for me. This isn't right. And, you know, Senator Moynihan was asking me to do it. And his wife, Liz, who was quite brilliant about r- running everything in his life, just kept saying to me about going to work in the Senate, if you don't like it, you can leave. If you don't like it, you can leave. And sh- those are the magic words. And she knew it. And so, you know, you take an, an oath of office when you uh, when you join the staff of the Senate, which I didn't know until the day I was joining the staff. I, down in the basement of the Hart Building, I got my hand raised in a payroll office signing a form, and I'm taking the same oath of office that the senators take. And I and before I left the room, the person who gave me that form to sign to join the payroll, I said, "Where's the form to quit? 
I need the form, and they don't have one. But I was like, where's the, f I thought this must be a form, it's government. Sure. Right? I go, where's the form to quit? She goes, what do you mean? Well, I mean, like, if when I want to leave this job, where's the form? You don't have to fill out a form for that. Uh, okay. But that's what was on my mind on the day that Always I was signing up. If I don't like it, I can leave. And, um, and I didn't leave, and it became seven or eight years or so. And the deeper I got into it, the more careful I was about the way I handled that job, you mm -hmm. know, and, and because it became more, uh, more valuable to me. And in, this, in the case of the Senate, it became precious to me. Mm -hmm. It's the most important thing I've done. And, um, and so this, you know, this, this show has become important to me, and I can't say that it was when I started. You talk about the Senate. I know you love the Senate. We can beat up on Trump. I don't anymore. All, well, the, the, to what I'm getting to, yeah. we can beat up on Trump all day long. But the real villain of all this is Mitch McConnell, who knows better and is intelligent and is putting party and power ahead of country. This is so hard for me, although I've passed through the hard part. But so when, when you work in the Senate, you look down on the House of Representatives as this unruly collection of people generally in plaid jackets, you know, and, and in the United States Senate. It's so fascinating, by the way, when you see a House member who gets elected to the Senate, they go from these plaid jackets to pinstripe suits. And I'm wondering, like, where's this? Who tells them? Like, but it's like the, the dress code in the Senate is just so much better. And so there's this elegance about it. It's mathematically elegant. It's 100. You know, it's two per state. It's who all the there's very few distinguished you know, in history, members of the House of Representatives, the Senate, you're in the Senate, you go, this was Daniel Webster's desk. Oh, and this, you know, the, the Senate is just where the, all the great legends were. And, and, uh, and so you're, you're working there. And I was working there at a time when there were still legends in Moynihan and Kennedy and, and several others at that point. Bill Bradley, amazing, mm. amazing character to be in the Senate with. Uh, and so, so I, you know, had all of that attitude about it. You know, it's the Senate. But the problem was, after some years of getting frustrated with things we were trying to do, uh, was because I represented a big state, New York State, um, I came to realize very slowly, oh, I see the problem. This Senate, this institution that I do kind of love and in the way that you're supposed to, that I revere, that I'm proud of, is an anti-democratic institution. Okay. Idaho has two. California has two. Right, right, right. This is an absurdity that is, that you could never present this to the rest of the world now and say, here's the way you should form your governments. It, it you know, no other country does this. This is crazy. And it's a crazy thing. So I had to face this and I'm not sure I would have seen it if I was working for a senator from Idaho. You know, I would have thought, isn't the Senate great that a senator from Idaho can stand up to a senator from New York? And it's yeah. like, no, that's not great. Yeah. That's not a good idea. And, you know, uh, New York should have, you know, 15 senators and Idaho should have one. And, you know, and, and, <laughs> and then we'd get into something like democracy. So before you get to Mitch McConnell's horrors and what he's done to it, which are quite blasphemous and horrifying and not the Mitch McConnell I knew, 
I mean, I'm so old that when I worked in the United States Senate, Mitch McConnell was one of the reasonable Republicans of the United States Senate. I mean, a really good guy, a quiet, good guy. Has he changed or the Senate's changed? That's the part I don't know. I, 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 so when I worked in that culture, um, and I went into it, <clears throat> I went into it as a writer. I didn't go into it to really do the work of it, really. I was, I was an observer, right? And I, I'd been a writer and I'd written a West book. Wing. and I'd, I'd written, yeah, I'd, I'd, West Wing came after the Senate, but I, I'd written a bunch of stuff. And so when Senator Moynihan invited me to come in, I took it as, I took it in a Plimptonian spirit. George Plimpton, you know, was a writer who used to do things like, go to spring training with the Yankees and pitch one inning in spring training and write a book about it. Or, or right? be the quarterback for the Detroit Lions. Paper Lion becomes that book. He ran one, in Paper Lion, he runs one play in an exhibition game as a quarterback, but he goes through all the training and he takes you through that. And you get this first person account of this really interesting world, right? And so I thought me going into politics in the Senate was like George Plimpton being invited in this way. And so I was always this writerly observer looking at it from this writerly distance. And then eventually I was actually, you know, flying the plane and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't step back like that. Um, but I, so I, when I first was dealing with these people, and it's still a thing for me, but and I'd be on the floor of the United States Senate and Bill Bradley would come running up to me at two o'clock in the morning. And quite literally say to me, what's the play? And I'm thinking, Bill Bradley, New York Knicks, in the tension of all of this, is asking me, what's the play? And he was a great guy to work with because he's a real guy. And his, I'm looking at his eyes that are going right inside him. And, he, and everything we say to each other is completely honest and transparent. That was so rare. Because what I would do walking around there, what I was always interested in in encountering these people is, is there a human being there? And I'm telling you, there isn't a human being there in over 80% of them. And when I was there, around 90% of them, there was no human being. 80 to 90% of the senators. Senators. Yeah. No human being. They're not being. human. They, they what are, are they? Then? They are zombies. They are, they are for, for most of them, <clears throat> it would be a trick question to say to them, what would you not do to get reelected? <laughs> they, they couldn't follow where that question ended up. They'd go, they wouldn't, they just wouldn't get it. I would do right? anything to get reelected. Exactly. Doesn't, exactly. Uh, right. So, so Mitch McConnell, who I had very little dealings with, um, looked to me to be the normal Bob Dole style Republican of, of that era. He thought that Jesse Helms and the right-wing nuts were right-wing nuts. He rolled his eyes at them because they were the problem in trying to get something done in the middle where Mitch McConnell wanted to be in those days. My sense of it is, it's very unlikely that Mitch McConnell as a human being has changed. My sense of it is there was never really anything there. He was going to do whatever it took to hold on to this office. And that's it, whatever that is to hold on to this office. And, and so... Um, you know, it, it's, it's an anti-democratic institution, which is what allows Mitch McConnell to do what he now does. So if it was a democratic institution, none of this would have been possible. You couldn't stop the Merrick Garland nomination. Like none of these crazy Not from things. Kentucky. No, you couldn't do it. You know, um, and, and so every, every frustration we have with government is going to remain because we're going to have the United States Senate forever, and it's only going to become increasingly 
anti-democratic because people are not moving to Idaho. <laughs> They're not gonna, okay? <laughs> the reason why Idaho has a tiny population is we have roads that lead to California <laughs> from <laughs> Idaho. But really, the Republican Party has changed tremendously from, let's say, the late 80s into now. Mm -hmm. Much more aggressive, much more anti-fact, anti-science, anti-media, uh, the politics of personal destruction, party over country, right? The Democratic Party has not followed them down this road. The Republican Party has changed, and that has led to D.C. being fundamentally different now than when you worked there. Yeah, it, that's, the, that's the basic story, is that we used to have two parties. Now we have one party and this other thing that we don't know how to describe. And and that's just unmanageable. Like we we do not know how to work uh, with 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 what is left uh, of these people who call themselves Republicans. You know, in there's this phrase now that has become kind of popular. It was originated <clears throat> by Senator Moynihan in the Senate, and he would say it once or twice a year. He he would usually be saying it in hearings when he was the chairman, and discussion would be going off in a certain direction, and and he would say to one of the members of the committee, um, usually a Republican, uh, but not always. Um, as the expert testimony was being evaluated, he would say, well, we're all uh, entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. Now, everyone's got that memorized because other senators have picked it up. They used to attribute it to Moynihan when he'd say it, but now it's just out there, which is great. He, he's coined a phrase that has become uh, a known kind of currency of explanation. And when he would say it, everything would stop in that hearing. Everything. And Malcolm Wallop, the most conservative Republican on the Finance Committee from Wyoming, would turn and would listen to whatever it was Senator, former Harvard professor Moynihan, was now going to describe as the fact. And that would get settled right there. That's the fact now let's continue our opinion debate. That could not possibly work now. It, mm. it, it, and by the way, Mitch McConnell was one of the people who would stop when Moynihan would do that and go, okay, let, okay let the, then the fight's over here. It's not over here. And, um, and the idea that, that that kind of reminder in the middle of an argument can no longer reset the argument and in the Senate is, um, you know, is, is the tragedy of today. And, and it is the amount that we've lost, you know, since the night. And by the way, in the 1990s, we thought that was as bad as the Senate could get. Right. We it, thought this isn't the old days when there was much more bipartisan stuff. What is it that has changed the Republican Party? Is it right wing radio driving the yeah. audience over a cliff, and then the, the elected officials have to follow them? Yeah, we saw it. Originally, it was Limbaugh. Limbaugh was much more powerful than Fox News at the beginning of Fox News. And so we started to see it then, like, oh, he's afraid of what Limbaugh is going to say about him. Um, and, 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 and so then it's now you add Fox News into it, and, and they just live in fear of that because that's what their voters get their information from. You know, it started, though, with Republicans— Newt Gingrich started it all, and right. Newt Gingrich didn't. He was a junior House member when he called Bob Dole, who was the Republican leader of the Senate, 
He called him the tax collector for the welfare state because Bob Dole agreed to tax compromises just like Ronald Reagan did. And that was too much for Gingrich. And so, but, but that sound of Gingrich then uh, was kind of hollow and no one took it seriously in Washington. That was the germ, you know, that was the seed that has grown. And, and that's, you know, that's what Fox News now is. And, and it's very, it's an unbreakable grip that Fox News has. Just take me inside for a second. What's the best and worst thing about being an elected official? Uh, the worst thing about it, uh, is the, um, the restrictions on kind of normal behavior. You know, um, if, if I were to give, um, you know, Senator McConnell, for example, if I were to give him a necktie, he'd have to fill out a financial disclosure form if the necktie was above, you know, 50 bucks, a financial disclosure form saying, you know, that I did that, you know, his old, old friend gave him a necktie. That, that, that whole restrictive, you know, uh, tripwire stuff, which is all over the place, is, is, is not easy to live with. Uh, but the biggest part of it is that you are basically removed from everyone in your life. You, you, you will lose the ability to talk to people in your life because what you do is peculiar and has dimensions that are very, very hard to explain to your kids or to your wife or anything. So the successful family arrangements that I've seen, the one that I saw best was the way Liz Moynihan was 100% in Senator Moynihan's life as his campaign manager, political advisor, all that stuff. She knew everything. I haven't seen the successful version of it where you know, the Liz Moynihan character goes off and becomes an art professor while you're doing this other thing because you're just going to be pulled apart and, and, and you're not going to, there's no way your, your life can be understood. It's hard for me to come up any longer with what the best thing is because, <laughs> no, because like, like my really? job doesn't exist. You know, I was the staff director of the Senate Finance Committee. That was a hugely important job in the Senate. NAFTA had to come through my office. The, you know, tax bills had to come through my office. The uh, the top tax rate, the gasoline tax, all that stuff, that was all determined in my office. The World Trade Agreement had to come through my office. Social Security did, Medicare, health care reform, all that stuff. That Someone has my old office and the business card that goes with it, but legislation doesn't go through there anymore. First of all, they don't do, they do very little legislation, almost none. And when they do, the bills get written in the majority leader's offices, Majority leaders and the speaker, they used to sit back and watch what the committees did and, and just sort of offer general guidance to what the committees were doing. The committees don't work anymore. And so the product, by the way, is much worse, much, much worse. Um, you know, the, this, you know, there was a sane, the, I, I shouldn't say sane, there was, a, there was a kind of Republican tax cut that used to get written in committees that we all kind of understood what it would be. And then there's the Trump tax cut, which was written by lobbyists and by, in effect, Trump accountants uh, in rooms that no one knew where they were. And that <laughs> stuff was just handed, you know, to McConnell and John Boehner and these guys. And it was just like, you know, get this done. And the legislative experts in the committees had nothing to do with it. And so, um, and, and, and the Senate, the job of being a senator now is terrible. It's a terrible, really? oh, it's a terrible job. 
it's a business card and a title. That's all it is. It's it's and if you're lucky, because you spend most of your day on the phone asking. You don't for do money? anything. You don't do anything. What did the United States Senate do this year? What did it do last year? You're a senator. What did you do in the Senate? Nothing. So if you think the job is speeches or doing talk shows, okay, I guess that exists. But <laughs> but it's it's a horrible, horrible job now. It's a really, really horrible job. You know, I think one of the biggest problems in America is that campaigning for the presidency or for the Senate, it's really nothing like governing. Yeah, they have so, nothing to do with so each the, other. So the test has nothing to do with what you're being tested for. Yeah. So we're setting them up to then go do something entirely different. Yeah, it's 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 utterly ridiculous and the amount of mon- the amount of time spent on the money chase is completely out of control. Uh, and so y- you end up getting worse people because if you said to, you know, right, you got to be willing to be on the phone most of your day asking rich people for money, and most human beings are not willing to do that. Yeah, and if you said that to most senators in the 1970s, so sort of 1980s, look, you, this is how much money you're going to have to raise. Uh, this is how long you're going to have to be on the phone doing it. This is how many fundraisers you're going to have to go to. Most of the senators of that time would say, "Well, I'm not going to do it." I mean. Harvard professor Daniel Patrick Moynihan, if you approached him to run for Senate in New York and said, here's how much money you're going to have to raise, he would have said, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, I mean, in his... In, a in, New York Senate seat is what now, $20 million? No, no, no. So so the, the, the Moynihan campaign used to pay about $3 million to get reelected to the United States Senate. The total budget would be $5 million, but $2 million of that would be spent on on direct mail fundraising. So really you netted out to have $3 million to basically buy TV ads. That was the whole game, right? So that's what he would do to get reelected. When he decided not to run and Hillary Clinton ran for the same seat, she spent $35 million, $35 million. So that's- that's, Mostly on TV. Yeah. And so now those seats are way more than that, right? They cost way more than that. And- and so the person who says when when they hear that, okay, great, I'll do that, is not, it's not your, not your best people, as Trump <laughs> would say. You know, there's a, I mean, we used to, there used to be a group in the Senate who were these naked fundraisers, and they were, they were really kind of genuinely unlikable people because they were just totally, they're just totally empty human beings. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Thrivemarket.com slash 
On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we had an interesting conversation at uh, To Kill a Mockingbird um, on Broadway. And because you grew up in Boston, um, which was deeply segregated uh, in a really intense sort of way, you have a different understanding, of, I think, of race than a lot of white people and a lot of willingness to talk about it. Um, what do most white people not understand about race in America? You know, I, I, I think I don't I don't think most of them understand the strength of racism. I don't think they understand uh, its depth and strength and its power because most of them, at least they think, did not grow up in it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so so I think, you know, most people in our population now, you know, are you know, under the age of 60, right? And so you could grow up an adult, a white adult in America. It, and, and every day of your life, racial, racial epithets have been against the rules. Like, that's bad. You're not allowed to say it. And your entire life, the only thing you've ever said when it comes to describing that word, you've, the only one you've ever heard among your friends probably is the N-word, right? Well, um, there's a there's this there's this pre-sanitized America that still lives and is very 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 powerful. And so I guess from my comprehension of the world and for America I could say I was lucky to grow up in a 100% racist environment. <laughs> 100%. Okay? And I had this weird pocket, which was my house, and I have not quite been able to explain why. But my father, who was a Boston cop when I was a kid, never said that word. And my mother never said that word, and that word was never in my house. And every single voice I heard outside of my house, except the nuns in school, said that word. Every single one. And you... You've got to understand uh, that even though the word has changed, everything that that word was sitting on top of in my white Boston neighborhood is still with us and mm -hmm. is with us in a very, very thick and poisonous way. And in a certain kind of way, it's arguable that it's, it's almost, it's not unfortunate, but almost unfortunate that we sanitized the language because, and I, I wrote this in, a, in a, this line, actually, it's coming to mind, Audrey McDonald did in a, in a scene in a show I was writing where, uh, where I, I had her say, uh, I don't know who the racists are anymore. Mm. And in the white world that she worked in, because they don't say this and they don't say that. And it's like, um, and, and she wasn't, saying, I wish, you know, I knew who they were. But it's like, that's, that's the problem. 
white people, most of them who grow up growing up in suburban America, um, I think think it's not there if you don't hear it, you right. know, and. And I also think because we have these vivid displays like, you know, fire hoses on, you know, children in Birmingham in the 1960s that, oh, well, if that's not happening, then what, what, are, you, what are you complaining about now? What is, what is that now? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, um, I, you, you couldn't have grown up in Boston when I did in the, you know, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, um, and not known it completely. I was lucky. I was just lucky that my parents knew it was wrong. I was just lucky. And I, I can't explain that. I have no idea why every other cop, virtually every other cop, my old man's age on the Boston police department. There it didn't, is. Didn't share one thought that he had about this. My, my old man was, you know, badly educated. He was a shitty high school student, uh, you know, who, who went to, who, who barely, Boston. barely got through high school. Boston lifer. Yeah. And became a Boston cop. And then because he's a wise guy, he's kind of sitting there in the witness stand watching these lawyers and thinking I can do that. And so he, as a Boston cop, he put himself through college and law school nights and eventually became a lawyer. So he had some other thing in him. You know, he had this thing that, that nobody else had, a kind of audacity, you know, and, and that included an audacity of thought because it was incredibly audacious in, you know, a, a deeply racist environment to not just be with that program. I mean, one of his best friends, his best friend in law school turned out to be this Jewish guy from another part of Boston. That meant that my family was the only family in my neighborhood who had ever met a Jew. I mean, that's how, it's hard to describe how isolated, you know, the isolated laboratory in which American racism got to flower. It's its own hothouse, right? And, mm -hmm. and the populations that are hated are theoretical populations because nobody who hates these people actually knows a black person. None of them knows a Jew, you know? So it's this odd or if you do, Same. it's like, well, that person is different. Exactly. Every every single if anybody did know a black person, that person was the exception. Yeah. You know, and um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I I definitely am absolutely certain in ways that can't be diagrammed that my uh, comprehension of racism in in America is directly related to having lived inside that beast. Two more things and I'll let you go. You have been a noted TV writer for a long time, wrote many episodes of West Wing. I miss it so bad. Well, what does it take to be a great television writer? Ah, television writer. Um, it's, the same as, it's the same as what it takes in writing generally. Um, and... You just have to, I mean, it, 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 it's a, it's a odd thing. Writing is a very odd thing. It's much more like bricklaying than it is like what people think of as creativity. The more you do it, the better you will get at it. Mm -hmm. When I was in college, I would not take a course if the professor, professor stood up and said, you have to write a paper. I was afraid of writing. I was terrible at writing. I couldn't do it. The idea that I end up professionally being a writer is a marvel to me. 
But all it is is I was ended up being forced to do it, and I just kept doing it. And and when you keep doing it, it changes the way your mind sees things and thinks about things. And uh, you learn how to kind of kickstart your mind past the roadblock of, of the beginning. Um, but I, I'd say for TV, you really, really, really have to know the way people talk. Mm. You really do. And then here's the part that very hard to teach, but you really have to know the power of silence. So, I mean, I remember doing this, I had this script that we were shooting at the West Wing and Richard Schiff, who's this just marvelous and Emmy winning performer on the show. We were struggling over one little line. There was one little line at the end of an act because we're going into commercial and it was just, I gave him like two words and he's looking at it going, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And you know, normally most writers think, Oh, the actor wants a big speech here. He wants more attention. What Richard and I, after a few hours of just wandering around the set, because we didn't have to shoot it till 7 o'clock, so we started thinking about it at 12 noon. And what we ended up doing was just cutting the word, just letting him be silent. That's what he wanted to do. So much better. So the only advice I have for people who want to write for performance is to take acting classes. Writing classes won't get you very far. If you don't take acting classes then you are trying to write music without ever having held an instrument, mm. ever. And this advice was given to me by a dear friend of mine, a playwright in New York, when I moved to New York and I had written a book and now I wanted to write for performance. And he was giving a playwriting course and I said, I want to take your course. And he said, no, that's a waste of time for you to take acting classes because of what I just said. And he used that thing. He said, if you don't, you'll be trying to write music without having played an instrument. It doesn't mean be an actor, but I, so I've spent a significant, I spent a couple of years in acting classes at the beginning, and that's where you learn about silence. That's where you learn about what if he says nothing? You, you learn a lot about that. You also learn really idiosyncratic, odd things, like for some reason, this word is hard to say. And it's just hard to say because it's in an acting scene, and in real life, it's not hard to say. And it's just, so you, you, you discover, and, and you discover, you, what you need, which is a tremendous sympathy and comprehension of what the actor is doing, because no one's aiming the goddamn camera at the writer. <laughs> They're aiming it at the actor. That's why we're here. And if that actor is struggling with something and is uncomfortable with something, it doesn't mean the actor's being a jerk, which 99% of writers think. And you develop, you develop a language with actors and you develop a fluency with, with acting. Uh, so that when you get into this spot of the of an actor saying, "I don't know, it just doesn't work for me," you 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 approach that sympathetically, you know, as opposed to this actor doesn't realize what a genius I am, and and so um, it it's you know getting the way people actually talk, and if possible, the way they think. Um, is what it's about. And so you need to be, you need to observe, you need to think, you have to ask people a lot of questions just naturally. You have to be inquisitive. And when someone does something, you have to say to them, why did you do that? Yeah. Why did you do that thing? Like that thing that you, you knew you didn't know how to do. And yet you, you tried to do it. Why did you do that? Cause someday you'll be writing a character who's doing that. Right. And, and you got to know what's inside that. Head. You have made it from, Small town Boston, son of a cop, 
you know, didn't have much of an advantage starting out, worked in the Senate, worked in West Wing, big show on MSNBC. What is your superpower that has allowed you to have this life trajectory? I would say be white and go to Harvard. <laughs> those two things. If you can do those two things, you, you are- Own the world. You're 90%. No, so it's, look, I was really lucky that I got into Harvard. Uh, I didn't know anybody who'd, who'd ever been near the place, right? And I don't even know exactly why I applied. I, I did. And so you were a great high school student. No, I got kicked out of a couple. I went to three high schools. Well, I was a great <laughs> high school student at my third high school after getting kicked out of a couple. And because I just I just said, OK, I, I, I'm going to take this seriously now and see how far I can get. Right. And I did my homework for the first time in my life. Like, oh, geez, this is this is all right. So, you know, do your homework, you know, but I can link every single thing I've done to this um and I know this sounds, you know, I know what this sounds like, but it, but it's it's very very true, and it, and it shouldn't be forgotten. But I can link it to, basically, well, that's because of this Harvard connection. Like I got an a literary agent for my book because Kurt Anderson was a classmate of mine at Harvard, and he knew a literary agent, and th- therefore my first book, Deadly Force, about police use of deadly force, was published. It wouldn't have been published. If I didn't go to that college, you know, uh, my connective tissue to Senator Moynihan, Harvard professor Moynihan was through Harvard. That's why he asked me to go into his reelection campaign. And because I did that, West Wing wanted me as a writer when I came out of Washington. Right. The West Wing wasn't going to want me as a writer if I didn't have the Washington experience. You know, MSNBC wanted me as a pundit because I had the Washington experience and I only had that because of this other thing. Right. And so. So it, it's all traceable back to that one thing. And then, by the way, I happened, thanks to one guy, Jim Downey, I happened to know, when I, by the time I left Harvard, the people who were going to be helpful to me in my life, because Jim Downey forced me to join the Harvard Lampoon, which I wasn't a part of. Uh, but Jim was president of the Lampoon. He's a friend of mine. He said, you should do this. And so that little group, uh, included at the time Walter Isaacson and you know and, and these different people um, who I had no idea were going to go on to do what they did or would ever open a door for me and it certainly for years didn't feel like any door was going to open you know for me because of that but um, it's all completely traceable to that and it's a luck story too I mean luck is everywhere in the story and you know people. What people forget about luck is that the most common kind of luck is the part called bad luck. That's the most common kind. Sure. Okay. And, you know, the, the other part, the, the lucky part of luck um, is much more common than people realize. It's much more common. I mean, just take West Wing, for example. West Wing was on NBC. If West Wing was on ABC, it would have been canceled in about three weeks because it would have been going against law and order or against ER, instead of having its promos run on ER Mm -hmm. and its promos run on Law & Order. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's how that works. So I became a so-called successful TV writer, and I get an Emmy from West Wing because of the luck of which network and scheduling and the fact that we were up against the Drew Carey show instead of (laughs) ER and stuff like that. You know, it's there's so much luck in that story you know, in, in that West Wing story and what 
all of us have had occur for us in show business after that. I mean, somebody just recently mentioned, you know, it was like the 20th anniversary um, of the pilot going on the air, the first episode was recent. And I'll never forget, and I said this on Twitter and Brad Whitford and some cast members jumped in on it. I said, you know, when the ratings came out the next day after the first episode, we all knew that our lives had changed. But I've been on shows where the ratings came out the next day and you knew, <laughs> okay, my life's not changing. Uh-uh, it ain't changing. That's what it is. <laughs> nope. No, and so, and, and so luck is... I think any story, any kind of life story that you look at that looks like success and doesn't look like inherited success, you know, like, you know, There's George W. Bush's story is not so much a story of luck. His father was president, right? But when you look at those things, there's always very significant luck in it. And there's, I can very, I wouldn't have to move the camera far from that person to show you someone just like that person who he went to college with or high school with, who didn't get any of this stuff because that person didn't also get luck. And, and, and I, I hate the idea that achievements are earned. You know, this is this achievements include so much luck and, and they, and yes, there's hard work within it. And the hard work within the path of achievement tricks us into thinking we did that. We did that. You know, and, and that's that Republican free enterprise notion that came screaming up against, you know, Barack Obama saying, you know, you didn't build that didn't road build that. to that factory. Right. And so the Obama concept is the truth, you know, which is you're Collective. so lucky there was a road that was near, you know, yes. your business, you know. And um, and so um, I, I, I can see every single you know, <clears throat> this thing that I do for a living right now, it didn't exist when I was in college. Right. Did not exist. Okay. Cable news didn't exist. Yeah. MSNBC did not exist when I started working in the Senate, right? So when I come out of the Senate and MSNBC is starting up, they immediately offer me a deal to be a pundit on MSNBC. And I go, well, okay, I'll take that. And so I'm on MSNBC in the first hour of the first day in 1996 in a thing that didn't exist <laughs> a minute ago, right? <laughs> and now it's my livelihood. What kind of luck is that? They had to invent an entire whole industry for me, you know? <laughs> Don't rely on that. That's just pure luck that yeah. that happened. Thanks to Lawrence for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you that fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps, and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall, and our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down.
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.